Hi, Bridget here. Before we begin our conclusion to the series on the 1928 Summer Games, I want to give a brief content warning for suicide mention. It happens at about an hour and five minutes in, and if you skip ahead two minutes or so, you should miss the whole thing. Now for the show. Welcome back to Olympic Size, the unofficial, unlicensed, unaffiliated with the IOC True History of the Olympics. As always, I'm your host, Bridget Natale, and with me is co-host... Sarah. And recurring guest... Uh, Frank Costello, I'm going to pull back the curtain. We are recording this right after the previous <gasps> one. None of us oh my god, you gave away our podcast it's secrets. It's the same day. Anyway, field hockey. I want. I like this field hockey story, so we're going to look at it. And I know what you're thinking. Who cares about field hockey? I was thinking that. I didn't want to say it. That would be rude. I mean, let's be real. It's not a hot ticket usually at any games, but it was in 1928. Wait, did they still do it? They do. There was one country in <laughs> ni- there was one country in 1928 that cared about field hockey a whole lot and through their enthusiasm and fantastic performance, won over the Dutch crowd as well. The first field hockey clubs were formed in India in 1885. This is a heartwarming story. They made their Olympic debut in 1928. Field hockey was a wildly popular game in India during the 20th century, particularly in the first half, more popular than cricket. Wow. Yeah. That's That's a mic drop. Yeah. (laughs) The game was also more socially open than cricket, with British and Indian athletes competing in the same leagues on the same teams. The team that was sent to Amsterdam was comprised of both British and Indian athletes. They were not received well at home because of this. It was a very um, segregated society uh, among the British colonial powers and the Indians at the time. So they they were not received well in the UK or in In India or in India? Yeah. Um, I guess. I just, I maybe I read that, I wrote that wrong. But Someone didn't like that they had a integrated uh, team. Yes. On the road, however, they were superstars. The Dutch adored them, and their popularity drove a newfound interest in the sport. The Netherlands beat Germany for the first time since 1912, and the unexpectedly large crowd loved it. The final match was between India and the Netherlands, and it was the hottest ticket in town. The number one most popular game of the games. And we have an excerpt about this from the games. Excerpt number nine. Let's see here. And it's this top one here. That 16 comes later. This is uh, The Games, A Global History of the Olympics by David... Goldblatt? Yeah. The one with the uh, Dutsman? Yes. Dutsmen, Spaniards, British Indians, and Frenchmen made the changing room resemble a merry-go-round at full speed. Taxis were nowhere to be had, and the occasional one which became available was stormed immediately. (laughs) There was only one traffic flow in our general capital, going in the direction of the Olympic Stadium. All this for a hockey match. Hockey, which was virtually unknown to the masses a fortnight ago. <laughs> so in two weeks, they packed that stadium. Yeah, you can close it because I got the, the little marks in for the next one. 
The Indian team won the gold, capping off a four-game win streak and marking the beginning of a gold medal dynasty that would last until 1960, with a team that would consistently win medals until 1980. So my question was, with the, uh, like... Fandom springing up within a fortnight. Yes. Are we looking at fair weather fans, or did this create like the lasting legacy that followed the team through all those years you just mentioned? Um, I mean, in India, they weren't. They were. They had been like mm-hmm. way into it already for like forty years. Like this was not new for India. Um, I don't know if the Dutch continued with their interest in field hockey, mm-hmm. but it was very much. A sensation at in 1928. Um, the captain of the 1928 Olympic team was 22-year-old Diane Chand, an army captain from Uttar Pradesh. Chand would return to lead the Indian team to three gold medals and become the Indian Olympic field hockey coach after retiring from competition. During this reign of excellence, the Indian field hockey team would emerge as a symbol of national identity as they sought independence from the British Empire in the mid-20th century. Gymnastics. The men's gymnastics competition was closer to what we recognize as Olympic gymnastics today. There were five apparatus they used, horizontal bar, parallel bars, pommel horse rings, and vault. So all the events were all things we still do in competition, no rope climbing or mass routines. However, they should bring back tandem pommel horse. <laughs> well, I mean, there were the mass, the mass floor exercises. Okay, those have never made sense, though, because it's just a chaos. It's just... People are doing things, and the judges decide if they want to pay attention or zone out, and then they just sign a score at the end, I right? think No, I think it's more like when you see, like, a cheerleading competition, for example, where they're just all kind of doing a routine together. I think is what that was. I feel like it's much less coordinated than most <laughs> I mean, professional I don't cheerleading <laughs> A lot of those mass routines happened before we had video or, like, film so I have, fair. I have a, no actual idea what they did there. Or at least I couldn't find any surviving film. Uh, however, there was no floor routine, so they didn't have everything we do now. There was individual medals on, in all five apparatus, an individual all-around medal, and a team all-around medal. All medals were determined at the same time. So they just took the aggregate scores for each apparatus and used that to figure out who had the team all-around and who had individual all-around. It's much more efficient. But we spread it out now, so there's more TV of the popular events, I think, is what happens. This is also different today, where team all-around and individual all-around are separate events, and then each apparatus has its own individual medal competition. One thing that they did that was something of a step toward more equitable scoring was for the team all-around was that the two lowest scores on each apparatus were dropped. Then they added the score for a team drill event, which did not have an individual medal. So I'm not sure what that was. This way, the way this all shook out was Switzerland was the big winner with five gold medals, two silver and two bronze. Czechoslovakia was second with one gold, three silver and one bronze. Yugoslavia was third with another five medals, one gold, one silver and three bronze. Italy had one silver and Finland one bronze. And so that mitigates a single bad performance tanking an entire team's run, effectively. Yeah. Actually, two. Because they dropped the bottom two. They're being very generous this yeah. time, for some reason. And also, I think, helps uh, mitigate some of the preferential scoring. Because, like, if somebody's trying to, like, score a rival poorly, 
to like bump their guy up, I, they drop that score. I kind of got the impression we hadn't been mitigating that kind of thing yet in these games. Because well, we certainly I mean, didn't solve it with horses. No, they didn't, but... As, or boxing. Yeah. Okay. Look, boxing, <laughs> they mitigated it by flipping the ranks top to bottom, bottom to top. <laughs> boxing, they it's, they fixed the problem by watching the wrong matches. It's and the only way that. to be fair. <laughs> Yeah. Is to be completely objective by not watching. Reduce the match. all boxing to a coin flip, and that's really can't the best say you're biased. Talk. Yeah, there was one medal event for women in gymnastics at the 1928 Summer Games, and each source I have gives it a different name, but or doesn't actually say what the event is. But the complete book of the Olympics calls it Team Combined Exercises, so that's what I'm going with. For some reason, Wikipedia thinks they had apparatus as well, but neither the IOC nor the complete book mention those at all, and there's only one score given for each team, so I think that may be an error. The competition was held outside, in the middle of the Olympic Stadium. The Dutch were the clear winners with a score of 316.75, another thir about 30 points more than silver medalist, the Italian team. And winning the bronze medal was Great Britain, who scored about 30 fewer points than Italy, so there's like a 30-point gap between each team. Out of how many? Uh, well, the winners has got 316.75. So like 10%. Yeah. Perhaps the biggest heartbreak was for Hungary. Their score was only 1.75 points behind Great Britain's. Ooh, so close to the podium after those significant like statistical differences from before. Yeah. And France scored only 10 points lower than Hungary. So there was a massive gap in points between the medalists... But then the bottom three were separated by just over 10 points. Yeah, and the uh, dog is... It's a real, rust, uh, real race for bronze, I suppose. Yeah, and the dog is just asleep now, so you probably won't hear her again on this episode. I didn't say her name, because I don't want her to get excited. All right, modern pentathlon. Yes. This is... It's where we give the horses guns, <laughs> and they have to swim across a river. Yes. And race right. up a mountain. That sounds right. And yeah. they have to cross-country ski. And with a sword. Uh, oh. Not a lot to say about modern pentathlon. The Swedish didn't sweep this year, though they did take the top two places, Sven Thofelt and Bo Lindemann, respectively. The begrudgingly accepted Germans spoiled the sweep with Helmut Kahl taking the bronze. They changed the way it was scored, where instead of some elaborate point system, you just earn points based on what place you got in each event. So the lower your score, the better. The absolute best possible score being five. So if you came in first, you got one point. <laughs> Incredible. This is such a... Okay. Is this a good or a bad system? Because it seems I, I like a... I don't know. It seems like a... It seems easier to Bad score. system. Yeah. But I can't quite put my finger on why. It just seems way easier than anything else they could do. That's rarely the metric they use for deciding how to score the Olympics. Because it also accounts for people dropping out. Like, if the best score you could get is five, it doesn't matter if halfway through, like, half the guys drop out. The best score you could get is still five. If you got points for everybody you beat, then the max score changes as you go. Yeah, that's definitely a worse system. Yeah. Is that the previous one? I No, the previous system was, like, <laughs> super complicated, where they were, like... They were, like, each event was weighted differently, like... Well, if you are in... The uh, military is an officer. I think that using the gun is more important than swimming or whatever. They could decide. Well, if we're following the path of this officer who has to do all five events, he has to do all five of them successfully. Yes. <laughs> so, anyway. 
There were 37 pentathletes from 14 nations competing, which meant the absolute worst possible score was 185. Gold medalist, though, felt score was 47. Interestingly enough, he didn't come in first in any single event. His best event was coming in second in swimming. His worst event was running, where he came in 21st. Silver medalist Lindman had a total score of 50, and Call had a score of 52. Out of curiosity, I went through to see who won the individual events and where they ended up in the ranks. Ingvar Berg of Sweden got first in equestrian, fourth overall. Heinz Hawks of Germany got first in shooting, fifth overall. Helge Jensen of Denmark got first in fencing, 10th overall. Eugenio Pagnini of Italy got first in swimming, 11th overall. And the guy who won the foot race, Stefan Slezatowski of Poland, came in 26th overall. So very bunched up at the top, except for maybe that last guy. Yeah. Just, just a real good runner who decided to go for the rest of them for fun. <laughs> I guess. Uh, rowing. There were seven rowing... There's a cute story with this. Uh, there were seven rowing events at the 1928 Games. Again, all for men only. Single skulls, double skulls, cockless, coxless pairs, <laughs> coxed pairs, coxless fours, coxed four, and coxed eights. Oh, that's a tongue twister. <laughs> yes. 245 rowers from 19 nations competed. The United States won the medal race in rowing with five total, two gold, two silvers, and one bronze. Great Britain earned four medals, coming in second. Switzerland, Italy, and Canada all earned two medals each. And Australia, Germany, France, Austria, Belgium, and Poland all earned one medal each. Of these events, three went off without a hitch. Coxless pairs, coxed pairs, and coxed fours. Of the hitches with the other four, some were more charming than others, so we'll save the charming story for last. In double skulls... Is the charming story... Um, do they just take a boy off the streets and make them one of the, like, rowers? No. Because that's the previous version of charming stories in this sport. No, but it's actually arguably more charming than... Uh, the recruiting a, random the recruiting a, making let's say recruiting a random <laughs> urchin. urchin. Not the part. important thing is that an urchin is involved. Yes, and you never wrote down his name, so nobody even knows who he was. But I assume they gave him a medal. Do you? No, I super don't. No. They pushed him into the water as they crossed the finish line. Like, <laughs> to lose, to alone. shed some weight. We just like, yeah. For yeah. this last leg, we don't need you. Go, That's go, why go. they won. Uh, that is foreshadowing. Okay. Oh, no! <laughs> In double skulls, Paul Costello with partner Charles McIlvain. Any relation? <laughs> yes, we are all related. We do the singing and the gangstering. <laughs> and the uh, double skulls. Earn, uh, Charles McIlvain earned his third gold medal in the event, finishing his Olympic career on a high note. The pair had no real challengers, winning every heat with notable ease in the final by five boat lengths. In Coxless Fours, the most dramatic thing to happen came in one of the heats. In the second round of heats, Great Britain was losing to Germany by half a length with only 50 meters to go. Then suddenly, Werner Zeitsky, Zeitsky, it's a lot of constants, uh, collapsed and fell forward on his oars. The rest of the German team stopped rowing because, well, a quarter of their team was incapacitated, and Great Britain shot forward to claim the lead and win the heat. They didn't waste the boon and went on to win the gold medal. There's no other story about what, no other information about what happened to this guy. Um, I'm guessing he didn't die, but who knows? Impossible to know for sure. Yeah, I mean, he's probably dead by now. Oh uh, the, <laughs> the big story. We're not quite that modern where we can say that they're still, like, retired in their home country or anything, right? Yeah. 
Though there's a uh, uh, one of them was still alive pretty recently, um, but we'll get to that at the wrap up. The big story in the eights is the coxswain, Don Blessing. The team was a crew from UC Berkeley, and any listeners who are super into American football history might recognize that name. After the Olympics, he went on to be one of eight founders of the Oakland Seniors Football Club, which later became the Oakland Raiders. Which later became the Las Vegas Raiders. (laughs) Oakland, the former home of the Oakland Raiders. Yes. Which also made him one of the founding owners of the American Football League in 1960. Oh. Okay. Yeah. All right. But this story is about the Olympics, when he was the coxswain of a gold medal American team, and a notable one at that. Uh, New York Times reporter Wythe Williams described him. One of the greatest performances of demoniacal howling ever heard on a terrestrial planet. He gave the impression of a terrier suddenly gone mad. With such language, and what a vocabulary! One closed his eyes and waited for the crack of a cruel whip across the back of galley slaves. Oh my god. That quote is a ride. What was is any part of that metaphor? We went on a journey and I didn't like where we ended up. He's a terrier whipping galley slaves. Oh my god. His, demon. He's a is demon his carrier on a demoniacal. And a, and a terrestrial planet. <laughs> and also, hell is run by dogs with whips? <laughs> tiny dogs. Tiny, tiny dogs, dogs with whips. Tiny, yippy dogs. <laughs> he is the coxswain, so he's not a big man. His tracks. <laughs> <laughs> the rest of the crew endured this until they won the gold. Then they threw him in the Slaughton Canal in celebration. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, celebration. Yeah. He was later voted MVP. <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> and finally, the did most... he get a medal? Yeah, he won the gold. Okay. He was a part of the gold. And they team. gave him a medal. He, got he a did medal? get the medal. Did they put the yeah. medal on his neck and then push him into the water? <laughs> he got a medal and he got to go for a swim. <laughs> he was little. He could that could have really <laughs> drowned him. And finally, the most charming story from this bunch happened during single skulls. Henry Pierce of Australia was a third generation sculling champ and a comfortable favorite in the Olympics. In preparing for the Olympics, he tried to row in the diamond skulls at Henley, but they refused him entry because he was a carpenter. You'll remember Jack Kelly was also barred due to being a bricklayer. um, Henley, that's Grace Kelly's dad, Henley would continue to ban laborers until 1937. That's not the charming part. Laborers. Yeah. I feel like there's a, man, they should just go on strike. Just don't, (laughs) don't maintain the building. That's not the charming part. Uh. The charming part happened during the Olympics. Pierce was easily breezing through the various heats, winning by several boat lengths. In the quarterfinal, he was racing against Vincent Saran of France and had a five-length lead when a family of ducks swam into his lane. He stopped and let them pass before continuing. Yes! And still won. Yes! (laughs) He then went on to win gold overall, Australia's single rowing medal. They did it. Pierce will return in 1932, and we'll have more to say about him then. The ducks were never seen again. (laughs) They quacked off into history. Did they give the ducks some tiny little medals? The Dutch ducks. (laughs) No, if anything, that was a sabotage attempt. (laughs) I mean, were those ducks paid? Do we know? In bread. He was racing against a Frenchman, so... I don't know why they... <gasps> the Frenchman tore off pieces of a baguette. A baguette? Ah, the baguette. Throwing the baguette. Ducks wait, go! Wait, wait. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Oh, oh, baguette. Go, ducks oh, go. My dastardly plan. Sailing. <laughs> 
There were three sailing races at the 1920 Olympics. 12-foot dinghy, 6-meter keelboat, and 8-meter keelboat. A keelboat is a small to mid-sized recreational sailing yacht. A dinghy is a type of small boat that is usually used as a lifeboat or tender for a much larger vessel. There was one sailor on the dinghies, three on the 6-meter keelboat, and six on the 8-meter keelboat. 23 nations were represented by 126 sailors, 124 male and two female. So they were ostensibly, possibly co-ed teams. Um, there was a fairly even medal spread. Nobody was the clear dominant winner. Norway won the medal race with two medals, one gold and one silver. Sweden came in second with a gold and a bronze. And then France, Denmark, Netherlands, Estonia, and Finland all won a medal each. The most interesting thing about sailing at the 1920 Olympics was the course they were on. About Which was a flat field of ocean <laughs> with little flags that you could easily go outside of and be disqualified. Well, uh, about a third of the Netherlands is below sea level, including the city of Amsterdam. So the Dutch have an elaborate system of levees, locks, and other means to manage all that water. And I just closed my notes. No. <laughs> ah, and it went back to the beginning. So scroll, I, scroll, 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 scroll. Scrolling for my we'll life. We'll fix it in post. Here we go, here we go. Uh, no, my table of contents came up and then they left. All right, 19, okay, there's the, and I have like all the 1928s in one document. Okay, sailing. City of Amsterdam. The sailing course, okay. The, so the Dutch have an elaborate system of levees, locks, and other such means to manage all that water and keep as much land above the water as possible. The sailing course was located in a spot that required the yachts and dinghies, dinghies to go through the locks to get there. And then after the games, in 1932, they built a new dam that dried out the area the course was on. So it's just not there anymore. <laughs> Instead, there's the newest city in the Netherlands, Almere. I was going to say, now we can use it for the next horse race. We yes. put little flags in there and the horses can go. <laughs> Among the sailors was Prince Alexander of Denmark, who became King Olaf V of Norway in 1957. He's not the only king to also be an Olympic gold medal winner. The other one we'll talk about in the 1960 episode. Let's just say that King Olaf's royal career ended better than his. Great foreshadowing. Yeah, in like a year or or more when we finally get to 1960. The other noteworthy sailor was Virginie Ariot of France. There's a lot of um, accents in that one. Part of the gold medal winning crew of the 8-meter keelboat Eilie 6. She was a lifelong sailor with a deep love of the sea. She would spend 10 months of the year at sea, training for or, for or competing in various events. In addition to her Olympic gold medal, she won the Cup of Italy, the Coup of France, Coupe of France in 1928. In 1929, she won His Majesty Alfonso XIII of Spain, Copa del Rey. And in 1931, she won the Ride Le Havre Ride Race, all of these victories she was awarded, after all these victories, she was awarded the knighthood of the Légion d'Honneur. But she would not return to the Olympics. In early 1932, she was seriously injured in a race, but did not stop for adequate medical attention. This led to other injuries and eventually her death. Her wish had been to be cast into the sea off the Breton coast, but her mother couldn't bear to do it. Eventually, in 1948, her son was able to fulfill this wish. In her memory, the Coup Virginie Ariot is the main trophy of the European Dragon Race held annually. Sorry, she was injured, didn't stop for injuries, leading mm -hmm. to more injuries, and eventually her death. 
How eventually are we talking? Like, during the race or, like, ten years later? Um, I think it was, I mean, it was before the, it prevented her from competing in the Olympics in 1932, so I don't think it was that long after that. I'd have to look it up. I would also like to be cast into the sea. Yeah, just toss us all into the sea. Just for future reference. The sound is, like, right. Yeah, it's right. It's not even that far. Yeah. <laughs> Soccer. You mean football? <laughs> I don't have anything clever. Um, are you ready for some soccer? Uh, oh my god. There were, <laughs> there oh. I found it. There were some rumblings behind the scenes for Olympic soccer in 1928. We hadn't yet forked off soccer into FIFA. FIFA was still organizing its tournament through the parent organization of the Olympics. Ooh. And the problem was that FIFA was not an amateurs-only organization. But if they wanted to have their tournament be part of the Olympics, only amateur athletes could participate. So all of their professional leagues at this point... Just were... funnel all of the money to the administration. <laughs> they would love that. That's what they do, isn't it? Like, yes. Okay. But, but even more money. Like, <laughs> Imagine if they didn't have to pay any players. Yeah, it would be the NCAA. Yeah, the system. The system works. The system works. <laughs> um, but they wanted to have okay. So all of their professional leagues, and at this point, there were already world class professional leagues in many countries, were disqualified, which is not how FIFA wanted to do things. But as amateurism was a foundational principle of the Olympic Games, it wouldn't be for almost seventy years before this was changed. FIFA was trying to find loopholes in the rules by doing things like later reimbursements. They are good at that. Yeah. Later reimbursements for lost wages and other things. So they would be like, okay, we're just not going to pay you. Until the Olympic Committee stops paying attention. And then after the games, we'll pay yeah, you. Perfect. <laughs> we're totally going to pay you for sure, for real. You can trust us. I promise. FIFA. Yeah, FIFA. The only sports organization more upstanding than the NCAA and the IOC. The only sports organization. That's <laughs> yes. us, FIFA. Great Britain withdrew from FIFA in protest over how they were handling all of this. It was a <laughs> mess. And they I mean, Great Britain is really big on withdrawing from organizations and not letting other people withdraw from theirs. I feel like... That's a loaded statement. I feel like we just talked about India. <laughs> anyway. Um, this would be the last time that FIFA had their world championship through the Olympics. After this, they would sever ties and begin the World Cup. The vote to do this actually passed the day before the Olympic tournament began on May 26th, 1928. And one thing FIFA does do, and this was part of the problem in delaying the Olympic Games, is they do them... Um, um, two years like so they're both so both the olympics and the world cup are on a four-year cycle but they're staggered they're staggered so um well it was 2020 for tokyo next one's 2024 2028 and uh world cup is uh 2022 2026 2030 so they're not um interfering with so each we other. just push the next world cup back one year and they no are not gonna do that <laughs> <laughs> like, we simply move it isn't the next one in Cutter? Yes. Oh. Cutter may be too hot by then. Like, well, if you push it back a year, you, you will, they will not be able to survive. It's, it's too hot now. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but, I mean, one more year isn't going to help the situation. No. Um, okay, please go away without leaving my notes entirely. Okay. If you'll remember, in 1924, the Uruguayan champion Olympics t team introduced the world at large to South American soccer. 
This time, Argentina would join them. Argentina proved that Uruguay's incredible performance in 1924 was not a fluke and not limited to Uruguay. They blazed through the tournament, beating the U.S. 11-2, Belgium 6-3, Egypt 6-0. Are those scores of individual games? Yes. Because those are not the kind of scores you see in competitive soccer. No, and it's not like it was different in the 20s. (laughs) You remember the hockey scores. I, I do not. The Canadian team oh, winning like yeah. fourteen to nothing. Yeah, uh huh. Again, I mean, hockey is just soccer on blades. Yes. And then finally, it's lose- a soccer with knives. Oh Prove me wrong. Anyway, Wait, hold on. Argent- soccer with knives. <laughs> That's pretty much what it. That's pretty much what hockey is. Knives yeah. and sticks. Yeah, it's more yeah. they use the sticks. I'm thinking just some guys with some knives, and you can only touch the ball with your hands, but you can only touch the other players with your knife. You invented the worst sports in speed walking. <laughs> it's not a sport. It's kind of just murder. It's sort of just a crime. And Argentina finally lost to Uruguay in the finals. Uruguay also won all of their matches, but without the really impressive scores. So they had more what you would expect to see in a soccer match. People lined up for tickets to the semifinal between Uruguay and the Netherlands the night before, and an impromptu market was set up to sell refreshments like liver and beef sandwiches, herring, mm. chocolate, beer, and playing cards. Was that all wife... sounds incredible. The playing cards don't sound as good to eat. Well, you gotta do something to pass else, the time. Yes. It sounds like Hannah was involved in catering. <laughs> yeah. Bring so. your own playing cards. And the next morning, most were disappointed. They lined up, and here's Oh, the... no! Yes. The next morning, most were disappointed. The police had to hit out with their sabers. It turned out only those who joined the queue before 9.30 on Sunday had got tickets. So the rest of them were just partying all night for nothing. Oh, this it is was their first year at Hall H. Yeah, I was going to say, on the one hand, this is a cross between like buying a graphics card and uh, an outdoor party, but... You can't just they, line up. We hadn't invented like line caps yet, apparently. <laughs> You gotta sleep out overnight if you want to go. If you want to get into Comic Con. Well, they did. Posers. They started lining up the night before, but it wasn't early enough. Yeah, been there. <laughs> the final between Uruguay and Argentina was a rematch of the rivalry that had been brewing in South America for a while. The fame of both teams, their virtuosity and elegance, had become famous across Europe, and demand for tickets was at a fever pitch. The Dutch received over 250,000 requests for tickets for a stadium that could accommodate just over a tenth of that. Neither team had the home field advantage, something that made a significant difference in their South American matches. The first match ended in a tie. And for the tiebreaker, they just played another game. (laughs) That is both better and worse than the (laughs) kickoff system. I mean, if the crowd is so into it anyway, you might as well give them a double header. Two hours, though. Yeah. yeah. Uruguay won that one, so they, they, they won the endurance match. After this, starting in 1930, FIFA would host the World Cup every four years on a staggered schedule from the Summer Games, like I said. Soccer is still an Olympic medal event, but the tension between FIFA wanting to allow pro athletes in the Olympics forbidding it, at least until the 90s, was no longer an issue. But since the 90s, they should have folded back in, right? Because now there's no conflict. Do you want to work with FIFA? Like, I'm not a huge fan of the IOC, but <laughs> I don't blame them for being like, no, that's fine, we're good. <laughs> Plus, the World Cup is so big on its own anyway, I don't think they want to. Um, Weightlifting. There isn't a lot to report on weightlifting, no major controversies, no crown princes throwing weights around the field. 
There were five weight classes, men only, featherweight, lightweight, middleweight, light heavyweight, and heavyweight. Out of the 15 medals available, Germany won the medal race with two golds and one bronze. Austria also won two golds. France, a full house with one gold, one silver, and one bronze. And Egypt won their first gold medal with El Sayed Nasser's record-breaking record -breaking score in the light heavyweight competition. Nasser became a crowd favorite due to his pre-lift habit of lifting his arms and raising his face to the sky and calling out for Allah's assistance. During the medal ceremony, after playing the Egyptian anthem, the band was supposed to play the French anthem for silver medalist Louis Hostin. But by mistake, they played the Austrian anthem instead. The, oh, I do that oops. all the time. <laughs> it's, really, it's really easy to mistake La Marseille for anything else. How many bars into the song do you realize, oh no, and just have to keep going with the group? <laughs> I don't know what the Austrian anthem is, but I think like da 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 da. Like if it's not that, you know immediately. Like within three or four notes. But nobody in the band is going to be the one who breaks form and no, stops just, the song. They are going to the end. The non-French crowd thought this was amusing. The French at the event did not. <laughs> what did the Austrians think? Uh, well, Austria did not win the bronze in that event. Holland did, so I think the Austrians just thought it was funny, or maybe. Annoying because they didn't actually win any medals. Italy and the Netherlands both earned two medals in Estonia and Czechoslovakia, both won one each. If you're counting along, you might have caught that I listed six gold medals in five events. That's because Germany and Austria tied in the lightweight division. There was no silver awarded in that event, and France won the bronze. And that is just, uh, not just, I don't, I don't want to trivialize it, but they lifted the same amount of weight? Yes. Okay. That's what tie and weightlifting is. <laughs> I like. I'm asking, like, that makes sense to me. Yeah. But also, you could have some liftoffs. I don't know. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Wrestling. Do, 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 do. Again, not much to report for wrestling. There was Greco-Roman and freestyle events, all for men. They are using freestyle now and not catch as catch can, which I appreciate because that's harder to say if you have to say it a lot. There were six weight classes for Greco-Roman wrestling. Bantamweight, featherweight, lightweight, middleweight, light heavyweight, and heavyweight. The tournament was sort of similar to how the World Cup tournament works, where wrestlers accumulated points in each round. Each round featured all wrestlers pairing off and wrestling one bout, with one wrestler having a bye if there were an odd number. The loser received three points. The winner received one point if the win was by decision, and zero points if the win was by fall. At the end of each round, any wrestler with at least five points was eliminated. Huh. So it's like a more violent golf. Yeah. For the heavyweight competition, by the time they got to the sixth round, only three wrestlers remained, and one of them, Rudolf Svensson of Sweden, had already beat the other two, both by falls. So he was awarded the gold medal. And Hjalmar Nystrom of Finland and Georg Gehring of Germany wrestled to determine who would win bronze and who would win silver. Nystrom won the match. In the lightweight class, Lajos Kareches of Germany won the gold. He had started wrestling on the advice of a doctor who prescribed wrestling as a treatment for prolonged neurosis. Kareches has... Kareches... Sorry, go back to that treatment. I want to know if it was effective. I mean, he won a silver medal in 1924, too, so, I mean, he... That's at least four years, so... He, he actually got better in the, in the yeah. four years. Yeah, okay. This is a good sign. So, it, I, I'm guessing prolonged neurosis is like an anxiety disorder? That's what it sounds like to me? 
pick an activity and then train. That seems like a valid. I guess physical activity advice. can help. Yeah. I mean, again, this is before any. We had a really good understanding of mental illness or medications to treat it with. So it was, yeah. that's why the one uh, runner is so into running. It was like his thing to treat his depression. There were seven events in freestyle wrestling broken down by weight class. Bantamweight, featherweight, lightweight, welterweight, middleweight, light heavyweight, and heavyweight. I don't know how this tournament was scored, but just looking at the Wikipedia page and how they listed the results, it looks like it was a straight-up elimination challenge with no point system. Out of 39 medals available over both styles of wrestling, Finland won the lion's share with nine, three of each kind of medal. Sweden came in second with three gold and one silver for a total of four. Estonia earned three medals, two gold and one bronze. Germany won four medals, one gold, two silver, and one bronze. Switzerland won three medals, one of each. Germany won a gold and a silver, and the United States won a gold and a bronze. Egypt won one gold medal. Canada and France both won three medals, one silver, two bronzes. Belgium and Czechoslovakia both won a silver. Italy two bronzes, and Great Britain holding up the rear with one bronze. Aquatics. Again, the aquatics events were co-ed, except for water polo. 350, not co-ed, co but I mean, they had men's and women's competition. Not that the men and women oh. were competing against each other. 352 athletes competed in swimming, diving, and water polo in 1928. And I don't have further breakdowns than that. But I do know that the nations making their Olympic swimming debut were Chile, Ireland, Panama, and the Philippines. The events largely went smoothly and... Uh, though there were some individual performances that were noteworthy that we'll get into. Now, were they using the water that was above level of the cities, right? They're below sea level. Yes. So did they just let some water come in to make these facilities or not that? There it wasn't a lot about the facilities. I know, so it was probably better than what they were doing in Belgium in 1920, <laughs> where they just had them swimming in a moat. Uh -huh. And it was probably better than that one murder hole. Oh, yeah, the, that was the water polo murder hole in, in 1904. Yeah, definitely don't, don't build a murder hole. Don't, don't swim and run off from the cow field. If you can help it. Yeah. Uh, diving. There was an equal number of men's and women's events in diving, as men's plain high diving had been cut from the competition. The star of the men's competition was Peter, Peter Desjardins, who was born in Manitoba, but later emigrated and competed for the United States. Standing five foot three inches tall, when he turned professional, he was called the Little Bronze Statue from Florida. Desjardins was the first Olympian to ever win gold in both springboard and platform dives. This Florida man wins two golds. Yes. Oh my God. This wouldn't be repeated until Greg Louganis in 1984 and 1988. But the actual games, they didn't know that... But at the actual games, they didn't know that when the medals were awarded. Farid Simaika of Egypt was originally considered the winner, and they played the Egyptian national anthem at the awards ceremony, but the judges corrected a scoring mistake and gave the gold to Desjardins instead. Oof. Samaika was a double medalist as well, winning the silver in the 10-meter platform and the bronze in the 3-meter springboard. Michael Galitzin of the United States was the other male diver to win medals with the silver in the 3-meter springboard and the bronze in the 10-meter platform. The American women also did extremely well in diving, winning five of the six me available medals. Laura Schockvist of Sweden won bronze in 10-meter platform, spoiling a sweep. Elizabeth Becker Pinkston won gold in the 10-meter platform, adding that to her medals from 1924. 
a gold and three meter springboard and a silver and ten meter platform. So like Desjardins and later Luganis, she won golds in both events. But her name changed between the gold medals. She got married to Clarence Pinkston, whom she met when they were both members of the 1924 American Olympic diving team in Paris. There are about 11 swimming events at the 1928 Games, six for men, five for women. There wasn't anything super noteworthy about the swimming events this year. Johnny Weissmuller did very well, though he didn't match his totals from 1924. He did add another two gold medals, bringing his total to five gold medals in swimming and one bronze in water polo. I feel like once you have gotten to the I am winning gold medals part of your career, winning gold medals again four years later is pretty good. Oh, yeah. Like those sports tend to burn you out within a couple of sets of games. Right? Yeah, unless you're like some kind of mutant like um, Michael Phelps. Um, this would be his final Olympics, and he retired from amateur swimming, never losing a single race. Oh. The Americans won the medal race, netting 11 out of 33 possible medals. Six are gold, three in the men's competition, and three in the women's. The women's competition skewed decidedly European, with Americans, Western Europeans, and South Africans winning all of the medals. The men's medals are spread out a little more, with medalists from Argentina, Japan, the Philippines, and Canada as well. What's probably the most interesting here, there, is that swimming powerhouse Australia won a handful of men's medals and no women's. All of the women they sent didn't advance to the finals. So, I don't know. It's like these things where, like, you see, like, in the diving, like, Japan didn't have anybody, and China wasn't even there. But they're, like, massive diving powerhouses now. And, um, like, Australia's swimming team wasn't that great in 1920. I don't know when these changes happen, because now you see them, they're, like, perennial favorites. And Jamaica isn't competing yet. I don't know when they start. <laughs> Once well, you... we'll find out together with the listener. Yeah. Uh, but when, when Jamaica shows up to the track and field, it's... They do really, really well. Um, the most exciting thing to happen was during the finals of the women's 200-meter breaststroke. German swimmer Hildegard Scharder was the overwhelming favorite going into the final, as she had already beat the Olympic record in her opening heat with a time of 3 minutes 11.6 seconds, a full 16 seconds faster than the existing record. Now, does that count, or does the heat not go into the record book? The heat goes in the record books. Okay. It, um... It doesn't count, you know, you saw do your yeah, final you hit the medal, but you have taken the record at that yeah, point. Yeah, So no matter what you do in the final, you still have, unless they beat your record in the final, sure. it's still your yeah, record. Yeah, great. Um, she did win the gold in the final as well, but her time wasn't as good. Maybe the wool fabric their suits were made of at, no! <laughs> at the time just oh wasn't God. up to the task of withstanding her speed, but the straps of her suit broke in the closing stages. She still finished the race and still won, but had to wait in the water until her straps were paired enough for her to exit while preserving her modesty. So it's like you get to the edge and you're just like, I have the gold medal. Throw me a bathrobe. <laughs> just, it's fine. It's just, ro any robe is great. Just. <laughs> or like maybe a little needle and thread. I can do it real quick. It seems <laughs> they, they must have had robes around. I don't understand how this could have taken that long. 109 athletes from 14 nations participated in the water polo tournament at the 1928 Olympic Games. Germany won the gold medal, Hungary silver, and France the bronze. The most interesting thing about this tournament was that the Bergwald system attempted to make a comeback, but only for the bronze medal. Basically, there was supposed to be a second tournament consisting of everybody but the gold and silver medalists to determine who won the bronze. But hold on, the system is bad. Yeah, they didn't do this. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Instead, they just had another match between the losers of the semifinals, Great Britain and France. France won 8-1. to one. 
That's kind of like a very small tournament if you think about it. Yeah. And we hear that door that I think, because um, we're, you we know. We don't know if we heard the door. That, might that was a loud, that's that Foley sounding door downstairs. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to acknowledge that it happened so people aren't thinking that someone's moving around their house if they're listening. You put the Foley sound effect in post. That's clearly what happened. <laughs> yes. Track and field. And for the big show, a major development. Women competed in track and field events for the first time. There wasn't a lot of controversy, of course, because if girls run too fast, their uteruses fall out or something. We are not... You say that kind of sarcastically, but I think... No, they... It was a real concern yeah. for some people at the time. It was mostly... No, that was a... The uterus thing was like a train. Like yes, that, women it, couldn't ride trains because it would vibrate their uteruses right out of their bodies. Yeah. That's was, the thing that was said at the time. It I, was too fast. But I don't 100% we'll doubt get, that you aren't telling me a real fact about 1930s, 1920s sports either. We'll get to what they said. <laughs> we have some quotes. So Great. We are. We were not even approaching parity in the number of events. Twenty-two events for men and five for women. There were some really noteworthy things that happened with the women, despite how few events there were. So we'll start with a rundown of interesting or noteworthy things with the men before getting into the women. As before, Americans were generally dominant in most of the events, though not as dominant as they expected and not as dominant as they had been. The Finns continued to hold strong in the distance running thanks to returning champion and introvert hero, hero Pavo Nurmi and his nemesis, Vil Rotola. You remember, Pavo Nurmi was the one who started running because he was depressed. Um, and he, like, invented all kinds of, like, ways to train that we still do. Uh, decathlon. Nothing terribly exciting from the decathlon other than the gold medalist name having an intimidating number of umlauts. <laughs> Ken Doherty of the United States won bronze. Achilles... Yarvinen of Finland won silver, and Pavo Yrolar of Finland won gold and set a new Olympic record. Doherty went on to be a really influential and successful track and field coach at the University of Michigan and University of Pennsylvania. He coached the Olympic team in the 30s, future Olympic gold medalists, a pair of long-distance running twins, Robert H. Hume and H. Ross Hume, who had a habit of finishing races in a dead heat holding hands, and so on. It seems like it would be a disadvantage to both of them. Well, I mean, if they were winning, then why not? Oh, they wanted to just tie all the yeah. time? Yeah. If they well, didn't, I guess... That's cute. Them, yeah. They wouldn't... They would finish the races holding hands. They wouldn't run the entire time holding hands. He probably would have had more Olympic success, except his prime years were through the 30s and 40s, when there were two canceled Olympic Games due to World War II, and a handful of the athletes he did coach died in combat. And probably more he would have otherwise coached. Eventually, his coaching career ended in a flurry of controversy when he would not back down in a power struggle with athlete and future movie star and son of trustee, Bruce Stern. Doherty wanted him to cut his hair. His sideburns looked so much like Elvis's that co-eds would scream in the stands, and Dern refused. I don't see how that's a disadvantage to him. It seems like that's fine, actually. Doherty just didn't like it, I think. I feel like... I'm on the side of the athlete here. This eventually ended in Doherty retiring from coaching completely. You Look, you chose a very dumb hill to die on. Yeah. yeah. Who cares about the guy's sideburns? Jumping. Americans were the clear favorite in pole vault. It was the only jumping event they swept. So the question wasn't would an American win, but which American would win. 
Lee Barnes had won gold in 1924, and he and Sabine Carr had been setting and breaking each other's records for the last few years. For a little extra drama, there was strong gusting winds and heavy rains the day of competition. They held it anyway. Carr turned out to be more capable of handling the treacherous elements and came out on top. You know, they don't they don't not hold the event because of different like air pressure and such at different venues. So what is pounding rain if not just very high air pressure? <laughs> I mean, they sometimes will do rain delays and stuff. Uh, what is this, baseball? He set a new Olympic record in the process of 13 feet 7 inches. Barnes, if you remember, he was Buster Keaton's one and only stunt double for one stunt that he did, uh, finished with a disappointing... The, the drowning one? No, it was something with a pole vault through a window. Oh, okay. He finished with a disappointing fifth place, while William Drogemuller won sil silver and Charles McGinnis won bronze. Long jump was a hard-fought battle. Ed Ham of Arkansas had missed the 1924 games when he was unable to attend the qualifiers due to bouts of malaria interfering with his training and competition schedule. But by 1928, he was healthy enough to break his Olympic record while qualifying for the team. His 7.9-meter jump would still be competitive today. The medal race came down to Ham and Silvio Cater of Haiti. Cater got a start in athletics and soccer, but qualified for the Olympics in 1924 in high jump and long jump. They finished 15th in long jump and 12th in high jump. It was a fierce battle between Ham and Cater, and in the end, Ham edged Cater out with a jump that was 16 centimeters further than Cater's best effort. To make it even more impressive for Ham, he had to dodge a pothole in the center track on the runway leading up to the jump. Alfred Bates of the United States earned the bronze medal in long jump. That is a rather unfortunate bit of a facilities yeah. uh, problem. Yeah, cinder tracks can get rough. Ed Ham. I feel like they would have built a new one for the set of games, though, right? This That was, like, new. They didn't have AstroTurf then. Hmm. That was, like, state-of-the-art. Ed Ham was the first Arkansan to win a gold medal in the Olympics. Arkansian. And there's no I. And the Atlanta Journal named him the South's first world champion in any sport. While Ham had largely faded from national awareness, Cater has not, at least in Haiti. A month after the Olympics, he broke Ham's world record with a jump of 7.93 meters. He was the first person to break the 26-foot barrier. He still holds the long jump record in Haiti. His record is 90 years old and is the oldest, oldest national record in the world. He is also the last Haitian to win any Olympic medal in any sport. Oof. The Stade Silvio Cater in Port-au-Prince was named after him. It was finished in 1952 and is still used today. I was going to say if a world record reaches 100 years old, it becomes sentient like a yokai. But now <laughs> I'm just kind of hoping that Haiti gets another medal soon. Yeah. Uh, high jump was still in a pretty experimental phase with regards to how they actually got over the bar. Today, the Fosbury flop is the standard, which is where you kind of go shoulders first. Um, but that wouldn't be developed and popularized until Dick Fosbury competed in the 1960s. In the 1928 Olympics, high jumpers deployed a variety of styles, but the most common was a complicated scissor kick that required a lot more precision and agility than the Fosbury flop. Bob? I'm trying to just imagine how a scissor kick helps you clear a bar it, in midair. It doesn't really, which is why... It seems like you're going to just kick the bar. Yeah, that happened a lot. That's okay. why nobody does this anymore. 
Bob King, an American favored to win, had a noteworthy style. He would run at an angle, jump with his right leg first, and then his left tucked underneath it. The Americans were facing a legacy where all but one of the previous high jump gold medals had gone to an American, and in Olympic Games where Americans were not performing up to the usual dominance. So the pressure was on. There were 35 athletes competing, which turned the event into a five-hour-long marathon of jumping. 18 made it to the final round. Eventually, it was down to five. Mikio Oda of Japan, who we'll talk about in a minute, bowed out after he couldn't clear 1.91 meters. The final five were King, Benjamin Hedges, and Harold Osborne, all of the U.S., Claude Menard of France, and Simeon Toribio of the Philippines. Osborne was the returning gold medalist and finished fifth. Toribio came close, but didn't manage to win the Philippines' first track and field medal, finishing fourth. Maynard spoiled the American sweep and won bronze, with Hedges winning silver. King, with his unorthodox style, narrowly won gold after his trailing leg clipped the bar. The bar wobbled for a few heart-stopping moments, but didn't fall, and thus his jump counted for the win. Uh, yeah, if it wobbles... That's fine. It's fine. You just can't knock it down. You didn't even hit it, basically. Returning Olympian Mikio Oda of Japan was not a favorite twin. A versatile jumper who chose to focus on the triple jump, he had finished a respectable sixth place in Paris. No Japanese athlete or any athlete from Asia had won an individual gold medal at the game, so he really wasn't on the radar. The trip from Japan to Amsterdam was difficult. He took the Trans-Siberian Railroad across the USSR to get there and only had enough money for soup on the way. It was a difficult journey and he was not in the best physical condition when he arrived in Holland. But after arriving, he found training conditions much more pleasant and was able to get in shape for the competition relatively quickly. There was a lot of pressure on him. The rest of the sporting world might not have given him much credit, but his teammates and coaches knew he had the ability to win if he had a good match. Conditions were working against him and the rest of the triple jumpers as they had to run a rutted grass track into an uneven sand pit. Oda Better or worse than the potholes? I think that the cinder track, you can at least rake it back together. <laughs> yeah. Oda was able to overcome this, and his first jump was 15.13 meters. He wasn't expecting this, as he tended to not be the best starter. But the remarkable first jump was the confidence boost he needed, and he finished the competition with a gold medal winning 15.21 meters. Of course, he didn't even stick around for the medal ceremony. He had to go to another meet in Paris. So one of his teammates accepted the medal on his behalf. And later, at the Tokyo Olympics, the main stadium flag was 15.21 meters in honor of his jump and the first gold medal won by an individual Asian athlete. Nice. Throwing. There were more upsets and unexpected winners in the throwing events. Starting with discus, where I'm not sure if there was a favorite beyond probably an American, an American, James Corson, <laughs> set a new Olympic record in the second qualifying round with a throw of 47 meters. One of the Americans. They're all the same. While this was good enough to advance to the finals, he wasn't able to win. He won a bronze medal, getting beaten out by Antero Kivi of Finland, who won the silver, and fellow American Bud Hauser, who beat the short-lived record with a throw of 47.32 meters. Wow. Bud Hauser had also won gold medal, two gold medals in 1924 for discus and shot put, bringing his career total to three. He was the flag bearer for the American team at the 1928 Games. After retiring from amateur athletics, he became a dentist in Hollywood, California, where he had many movie star clients. That would be a good good gig to get. 
I don't see the connection, but honestly, like it's possible to do any number of things if you're in dental school. Um, there's lots of opportunities for sports and athletics. The current <laughs> AEW Women's Champion is a practicing dentist who, you know, took up wrestling at, as a student. Yeah, I don't. I don't know what the connection is either. But I was. I would think like being a Hollywood dentist would probably be a good business. It seems. I mean, dentists. They're doctors. They get money. Yeah. They're. They're important. Teeth are bones, people. They're your luxury bones, but you should get them taken care of. Teeth are bones that grow out of your head. They're your outside bones. <laughs> yes. Anyway, um, but yeah, like even in the tw 20s and 30s, like movie stars had to have good teeth. Um, in shot put, we had another American gold medalist who really fought back from a bad setback. John Cuck was a favorite going into the games. Having set over 100 records in javelin and shot put while a student athlete at Emporia State University in Kansas. His big challenger at the games was Emil Hirschfeld of Germany, who had set a new world record in shot put just a few months before the games. The big obstacle facing Cuck at the games was that some time before he got there, he broke his ankle. I wasn't able to find any information about how or when this happened. They didn't mention it in the article on the IOC website. His Wikipedia entry is about three sentences long, and this injury was not mentioned in any of the books I have. Um, anyway, according to the one article that mentions it, Cuck threw the bare minimum in qualifying rounds to make it to the finals, and when he did, he let it all out. They used a different throwing style at the time, more of a side throwing like a softball pitch than the modern pushing throwing style, which I cannot imagine. I did throw shot put in high school, and it is... And you can't imagine just kind of winging it? No. Like, the pushing motion, you get a lot of stability. Is Any this kind why, of, like, swinging motion. Is this why the shot puts went off into the stands and the sides of the field and the old Parisian I don't know, but throwing this events? might be part of why I'm in physical therapy for my arm now. Mm. <laughs> so, anyway. I didn't, I didn't compete that long. Um, where are we? I'm cold. Hirschfield, oh yeah, Sarah just put a blanket on herself, that's why she said that. <laughs> uh, Hirschfield is at the standard with a throw of 15.79 meters, but fell, so but fell four centimeters short of his own record. Cook threw 15.87 meters, setting a new Olympic record and world record as he claimed the gold medal. Fellow American Herman Bricks won silver, he would later go on to be a prolific movie star under the name Bruce Bennett, and Hirschfield won bronze. Post-World War One, Olympic javelin had been the domain of the Finns, and a few months before the games it seemed like it would be again as Aino Pentila threw a new world record at of 229 feet 3 inches. I don't know why these are in feet and not meters like everything else. Gives you nice more round numbers. I guess. He broke the previous world record by 10 feet 8 inches, but Pentila was hindered by it's an quite elbow. quite Yeah. Pantilla was hindered by an elbow injury and crumbled under the pressure. He finished sixth. Swedish sign painter Erik Lundqvist, using a more modern throwing style than his competitors, won with a throw that was over a meter further than silver medalist Bela Zhepis of Hungary. Lundqvist was 20 years one month old and became the youngest competitor to ever win gold at Javelin. Ula, all he celebrated with a drink. No, he could not. <laughs> We couldn't Amsterdam. Oh. Mm. <laughs> Olaf Sunda of Norway won bronze. We have another first gold medal for a nation in the hammer throw. Technically. They, the, this nation had won, but they were um, colonized by another 
power. So all their earlier... Was he Britain? Yeah. Mm. Patrick O'Callaghan of Derry Gallon in Cork had only been competing in hammer throw for 13 months when he went to the Olympics and won Ireland's first Olympic gold medal as an independent nation. So you're well spent? Yes. O'Callaghan's family was made up of athletes, though most focused on Gaelic games like Gaelic football, hurling, and rugby. When O'Callaghan decided to focus on the hammer throw, he made it his own by filling he made his own by filling a shot with ball bearings and attaching it to a bicycle pedal. This is how he trained for the Olympics, and it worked. Austria, Sorry, and a bicycle pedal? Because it's a hammer throw. It has a, a chain and then a handle. I see. Uh, Austin Skjord of Finland, Sweden won silver, and American Edmund Black won bronze. O'Callaghan would return in later Olympics and was a flag bearer at the 1932 Games. After retiring from amateur competition, he stayed active in the sporting community earned a medical and earned a medical degree. He's regarded also in dentistry? I don't know. Probably not. Probably They would have said dental, I think. He's regarded as one of Ireland's greatest athletes. With a sports complex named after him in County Clonmel and a statue in his honor in Bantir, County Cork. The Americans struggled in the running and hurdling events in a way they never had before. Whether this was a failure of their own program or an improvement on the part of others, I'm not exactly sure. But, in 19, but 1928 stood in contrast to previous Olympics with no American sweeps of any running or hurdling events. Most important question for hurdling. Did they have the T-joint hurdles or had they invented the ones that don't break your legs if you if <laughs> I you think they were the still jump. using the T-joints made out of wood. They don't have that lightweight alloy. I'm just saying, you miss a jump on the old style hurdles, you break your shins. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's really bad. And with only three American golds at all, two in relays. There was one American favorite in the 100 meter, notably Bob McAllister, the flying cop of New York City. Along with him was Guyanese-born British athlete Jack London, not the author, a six-foot two-inch, 200-pound muscular black athlete who was the first Olympic sprinter to use starting blocks. He cut a striking figure on the track as he cut through the finals. Oh, that's interesting. One, that they didn't have starting blocks before this, but two, that you could opt into them if yeah. you wanted, and it wasn't considered, like, a assistive tool or something. Yeah, I guess not. Yeah. And then there was Percy Williams, a pale 20-year-old university student out of Vancouver who weighed in at a whopping 126 pounds in the lane next to London. Williams was not a favorite, despite matching the Olympic record in the second heat with a time of 10.6 seconds, because four other athletes matched that time to qualify for the finals. The final consisted of McAllister, London, Williams, American Frank Wyckoff, who had gained 10 pounds on the boat ride to Amsterdam. That's like cruise food for you. <laughs> right. South eating little chocolates. <laughs> Lots of bread. South African Wilfred Legg and German Georg Lammers. The one thing Williams really had going for him was an explosive start. And in the final, he did just that. And I mean, really, with a 100-meter dash, how much more do you need? Um, he finished with a time of 10.8 seconds. London finished at 10.9, and Georg Lammers just a half step behind London. McAllister pulled a tendon on the uneven center track and finished dead last. Again with the cinder tracks. R.I.P. to NYPD. <laughs> well, he can fly, so yeah. <laughs> he doesn't need to be able to walk. Williams was not done, though, because he also had the 200 meter to compete in. Competition for the 200 meter finals was incredibly fierce. 
In the quarterfinals, three runners equaled the Olympic record, but only two were able to advance. Charlie Paddock, who already held two silver and two gold medal Olympic medals, didn't make it past the semifinals. The final six were Percy Williams, fresh off his gold for the 100 meters, Walter Rangeley of Great Britain, who had spent all the heats chomping at Williams' heels, Helmut Koenig of Germany, one of the athletes who had survived the bloodbath quarterfinal heat, Jackson Scholes of the United States, John Fitzpatrick of Canada, and Jakob Schuler of Germany. Koenig led early but wasn't able to keep up the pace. In the last 50 meters, he was passed by Williams and Rangley. Williams, despite his slight frame, had enough left in the tank during his eighth race in two days to kick it into another gear in the last few seconds and won by nearly a yard or a meter. Rangley came in second. Third place came down to a photo finish between Schultz and Koenig, and Koenig being determined the winner. Williams, upon return to Canada, was greeted by an overjoyed Canada. He was feted in Montreal, Toronto, Winnipeg, and across the country before returning to an adoring crowd in Vancouver. Tens of thousands cheered him as he departed the train, and he was awarded a blue Graham Page sports car and $14,000 for his education. In 1950, Williams was declared the best Canadian athlete of the first half of the 20th century, and in 1972, this was updated to declaring him the best Canadian Olympic athlete of all time. Despite such a hero's welcome, Williams later became embittered about his experiences. In 1976, he was the only living Canadian Olympian to refuse the invitation to attend the Montreal Olympics. In 1980, he donated his two gold medals to the British Columbia Sports Hall of Fame. They were subsequently stolen. Williams himself just shrugged off the loss and never bothered to request a replacement. Well, that's an... Sorry, do we know why he became bitter? They just we glossed over that. They, I don't know. Well, I don't I hope, know. I hope he stole his own medals. <laughs> He's from the. He donated them to the sports hall of I fame. I hope he and stole, stole them stole back, back for spite, just to, like something. Uh, Williams never married and lived with his mother until her death in 1980. Two years later, suffering from arthritis, but in otherwise good health, as far as we know. Uh, William committed suicide, shooting himself in the head with a gun he had been awarded for his gold medal performance. He was 74 years old and left no indication as to the motives behind his suicide. So I feel like maybe the part about why he became embittered, I'm going to walk back and say mental health issues. Likely some kind yeah, of I mean, depression. That was, I think, pro definitely played a part. Yeah. But... You know, if there was any actual cause, like, or not actual cause, you know what I mean? But, like, outside cause, or if it was just, um, you know, not having appropriate treatment for that when it started. I don't know. There wasn't a whole lot of... I don't think he said a lot about it other than, you know, refusing to participate in Olympic stuff and whatnot. Which it, is not necessarily going to be healthy. You should seek treatment if you can. Yeah. Kind of thing. But, I mean, if, if it started in the 20s, like, this is the other thing. You're not like, getting a lot of support system, probably, as an Olympic athlete in the 1920s and 30s. And there's not, there wasn't a whole lot of treatment options yeah. back then. That's another thing we keep running into with a lot of these people. Like, I mean, now there's more awareness, but there's also more effective treatment, which helps considerably. Uh, in 1996, the Canadian Post included a stamp of Williams as part of their Sporting Heroes series. And a bronze statue of him stands outside the British Columbia Sports Hall of Fame. So, you know, that was 16 years after, or no, 14 years after he died, they put him on a stamp. So his legacy wasn't tarnished by, you know, his later struggles. The Americans managed to save some face in the 400-meter sprint. 
Not much, though. They did win gold, but it was the only gold in any running event they would win in 1928. Ray Barbuti managed to get it together, and it was no easy task. Part of the reason for the American collapse was a lack of preparation. For what reason? I don't know. It could be arrogance, incompetence, or bad luck. Or all of these things at different times. Emerson Spencer of the U.S. had set a world record in the 400 meter in May of 1928, but didn't make the team. He had mistaken the final heat of the qualifiers for a semifinal and paced himself to finish so that he could advance the next round. But there was no next round and he didn't make the team. I think I would chalk that one up to bad luck. That is a strategic error. Yeah, that's, that's a bad luck or yeah. possibly carelessness, but I, I've made dumb mistakes at on At the wrong things. stadium at the wrong time. Yeah. This, is, this is the kind of things that happen. The trials themselves were held only a few weeks before the games, and with all the extensive travel time it took to get them to the games, the Americans were just too green to compete at the level people had come to expect from them. James Ball of Canada and Joachim Buechner of Germany won their semifinals and were favored going into the final. But Ray Barbuti, fullback for the Syracuse Orangemen, managed to manage the upset. Fighting a significant headwind, he screwed up the strategy his coach had set for him, starting his finishing kick at around 100 meters before the finish, li finish line instead of 70 meters. But Ball, who had come in second, was unaccustomed to running in lanes, misjudged his position, turned his head to try to figure out where he was, and despite a fantastic finishing kick, was unable to catch up. Barbuti lunged so hard for the tape that he wiped out and scraped his arm, leg, and side, but he won. <laughs> so I'm not sure I completely follow the um, lanes comment he was unsure of the distance or because like the lanes keep you kind of in your lane so to speak <laughs> well the 400 meters the whole way around the track i see and that's one where you it's hard. your staggered start and you don't really know how to account for like the turns on yeah. the track if you're stuck in the lane with the fixed distance sure okay yeah and we do have one quote and yet diving across the finish line is fine if you don't have another race to go to you can just scrape off all your skin it's whatever Oh, yeah. Okay. I just go full Hellraiser. Here. here we go. I never noticed the other runners after the start. I heard them. But all I kept thinking was, run, kid, run. <laughs> I don't remember anything of the last 100 meters except a mad desire to get to the tape. Yeah, and then he... I mean, look, if, if, you're, <laughs> if you're in first, don't just go yeah. real fast. <laughs> like, that's a perfectly valid strategy as far as I know. I'm not Don't an expert back. in running. Don't quote me on this. But no, The one thing I know about running, I was never much of a runner, but I know don't look back, don't look at anybody else, just run. Mm -hmm. um, Buchner came in third. There were four world-class runners in the 800-meter race who had all been taking turns breaking the world record since the 1924 games. Lloyd Hahn of America, Dr. Otto Peltzer of Germany, Douglas Lowe of Great Britain. Doctor of what? Otto Peltzer. What's his degree in? I don't know. They just said doctor. I mean, they Is don't... Is it dentistry? <laughs> Could be. Well, he's a German dentist, okay? And Seraphine, or Sarah Martin of France. Lowe was actually a defending Olympic champion, but generally wasn't given his due on that victory as his teammate, Henry Stallard, who had been the favorite in 1924 was injured in the final, which was which most considered the only reason that Lowe had won. Side note, the article on the IOC website about this race identifies Sarah Martin as a Swiss athlete, 
But both Wikipedia and my copy of the complete book of the Olympics say he was French. As far as I can tell, he lived his entire life in France and never competed for the Swiss team in anything. Also, he was from Nice, which is nowhere near the Swiss border. So maybe the IOC should do some fact-checking. <laughs> anyway. How dare you? How <laughs> dare you question the IOC's official report on anything? <laughs> anyway. Didn't they miss a whole game once? I mean, there's the intercalated. <laughs> Dr. Otto Peltzer got sick during the semifinals and didn't make it to the final round, which is irony for you. Han and Martin Martin both choked, finishing fifth and sixth, respectively. Lowe shocked the crowd with a surge late in the second lap that led him to setting a new Olympic record and finishing a full second ahead of silver medalist Eric Bylane of Sweden. Hermann Engelhard of Germany came in third. Moving into the long-distance races, which had been dominated by the Finns in the post-war era, they did not end up dominating as completely as they had in the last two Olympics, but they didn't collapse as spectacularly as Americans had in the sprinting events. Harry Larva was not a favorite in the 1500 meters. His strongest event was 800 meters, which he didn't even qualify for in 1928. Aino Perjeborg of Finland was leading the pack until the last 200 meters when Jules Landemug of France surged ahead. It wasn't until the last 20 meters that Larva really kicked into high gear and ended up winning by four whole yards or meters. Some interesting things about Larva. He was born in the same town as pa Pavo Nermi and was inspired to start training in running after seeing a post-Olympic race between Nermi and Ville Rotola. Also, he was born Harry Lagerstrom, but before the Olympics, the president of the Finnish Athletics Union and future Finnish president convinced him that his name wasn't Finnish enough and said he should change it. So he got a, a work name? Yeah, a stage <laughs> name, a, a race name. A kayfabe name? <laughs> Next, we're going to jump to the 10,000 meter because it took place before the 5,000 meter and that is relevant. Pavo Nermi, the introverted perfectionist Finn who won so many gold medals in his career that his record of nine total stood until Michael Phelps finally broke it, was permitted to complete, compete in the 10,000 meter. If you remember, he was not on the 10,000 meter roster for the Finns in 1924 due to his, during his insane week of constant long distance races, and Vil Rotola, the Ryan Lochte to Nermi's Phelps, won the gold in that event. Nermi proved his worth in the 10,000 meters. Rotola kept pace with him the entire time until, until Nermi smoked him in the final moments of the race to shatter Rotola's record and win the gold. But this would be Nermi's final gold medal. In the same event, he had won his first gold medal in 1920. They both competed in the final for the 5,000 meter race about a week later. Instead of waiting until the end to start sprinting, Nermi increased his pace at the halfway mark, which took out most of the competitors. But Rotola kept up, along with Swedish runner Edvin Wied. Weed? Weed? By the last 400 meters, they were the only ones in contention for the medal. Rotola pulled ahead, and at 150 meters left to go, he glanced to see Nermi lagging, and then he sprinted to the end. He jumped ahead so fast that Nermi's only reaction was to glance at Weed wide to make sure he'd still get the silver, because there was no way he'd catch up to Rotola. And Rotola beat the master to win the gold, though he didn't beat Nermi's record. This bought Rotola's career total to five gold and three silvers which would have made him a superstar in his home country, if not the world, except for the fact that his teammate was Pavo Nermi. And Edwin 
weed one wide. It's wide, but I feel like this that can't be how you say What's it. What's the spelling? W I D E. But he's is he from Sweden or Nor Norway? He's Swedish. I feel like that can't be how you say it in Swedish. Um. Anyway, he won the bronze, just as he had in 1924, and we'll be hearing about Nermi one more time when we get to the 1952 Helsinki Games. It's quite a jump from now. Yeah, he isn't competing. Um, and then the big one, the marathon. As marathons go, this wasn't so bad. Of the 69 competitors who entered, 52 finished. The last place went to Willem van der Steen of the Netherlands with a time of 3 hours, 29 minutes, and 21 seconds. That seems good. It would have earned him a silver medal in 1904. <laughs> That's like my new standard. What would, this, what would the last, what would the last place marathoner have earned in nineteen oh four? The Finns didn't dominate the marathon the same way they dominated the long distance track races. The increase in distance between ten thousand meters and forty two point nineteen kilometers is significant enough that nobody had really worked out a good training regime to tackle it yet. Two returning athletes were Manuel Jesus Plaza Reyes of Chile and Ahmed Bouguera El Wafi of France, but Algeria. Uh, neither had medaled in 1924, but they both finished in the top eight. Reyes had run the race at El Wafi's shoulder and finished just ahead of him, so he took that position again. Kanamatsu Yamada and Seishiro Tsuda of Japan were both new to the Olympics and the marathon. American marathoner Joao Rey Joy Ray is J-O-I-E. Joy Ray and Finland's Marti Martelin were the last of the six runners we're going to focus on. Ray was not new to the Olympics, having won a bronze medal in the 3,000 meter team race in 1924. He never won another Olympic medal, though he won over 950 medals during the course of his career, set 13 national records, and was elected to the U.S. National Track and Field of Fame, Hall of Fame in 1976. He led the race through the first turnaround, but was quickly overtaken by Yamada and Suda. He kept pace with the Japanese runners past 30 kilometers. This is when El Lafi and Reyes caught up to the front runners. Three kilometers left to go. They were in second and third place, right behind Yamada. The last lap around the stadium was when they all they pulled out in front, and El Lafi pulled ahead of Reyes, finishing 150 meters ahead of him. They both knocked about. 31 minutes off their finishing time from 1924. Marti Marjolin of Finland won bronze, finishing about 90 seconds behind Reyes, and Yamada came in a heartbreaking fourth, 27 seconds behind Marjolin. So the... You said 40 minutes off the previous marathon time? 30. 30 minutes still feels like a lot. I'm wondering if you're... So you're below sea level. So it's the <laughs> opposite of when they have a high elevation gain. You're getting so much more air. More oxygen per air. But it's more air pressure. Pushes you along faster. I don't know. More air pressure at your back. Reyes was the first Olympic medalist from Chile. Martí Martelin died in combat in World War II. El Wafi was born and lived in Algeria, which is part of France in 1928, which is why he competed for France. El Wafi's athletic abilities had been discovered by a commanding officer when he joined the French colonial army. His respectable performance in 1924 was what allowed him to train for 1928 and eventually win. After his gold medal win, he toured the United States. The money he earned from this disqualified him as an amateur, so he never competed in the Olympics again. Instead, he opened a cafe in Paris. 28 years later, Algerian Alain Mimoun won the gold medal in the 1956 Olympic marathon. 
French reporters went to seek out El Wafi for a human interest piece and found him living in poverty. The support fund was amassed by French sportsmen to help the forgotten hero, but he would not live long to enjoy them. A few days shy of his 60th birthday, he was shot and killed in a cafe. The exact circumstances are murky, but the violence was related to the Algerian National Liberation Front. French media claimed he was targeted by separatists, though other witnesses say he was a bystander when members of his family got into an argument with revolutionary forces. Don't know. There were two hurdle events in 1924. <laughs> the 110 meter and the 400 meter. This was another event the Americans had dominated and would go on to dominate for decades to come, but this year somebody else managed to beat them. George Whiteman Smith of South Africa qualified for the finals in a masterful performance in the semifinals where he beat the world record by two-tenths of a second. He then granted a strategically ideal lane three position to his teammate, Sidney Atkinson. Usually, the inside track is something of an advantage, but the inside track at this point had been so destroyed by the track hosting so many races that it essentially guaranteed failure. Again, the potholes. Yes. Still with the potholes. And they hadn't fixed it. And no, before you ask, you can't switch lanes they anymore. They are the pen dot of Olympics. <laughs> really great joke to make in Washington. <laughs> <laughs> I assume most of our listeners are not in Washington State. Yeah, they are, true. in fact, in Pennsylvania. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah. Well, most of our family is in Pennsylvania, but That's as we discussed, true. they don't listen to this show. <laughs> yeah, well, at least my siblings don't. Um, anyway, you're not allowed to switch lanes anymore. Uh, Whiteman Smith did this because Atkinson had almost won the gold in 1924, but was edged out by George Guthrie when he clipped the final hurdle, which again, as Frank was talking about, is a much bigger deal when they are, the Two hurdles jump, yeah. are, are shaped like upside down T's and made out of wood and, uh, break your shins when you clip yeah. them. <laughs> so, um, Atkinson did not repeat that mistake and won the race with a time of 14.8 seconds. Bearcrits took second, third, and fourth place with um, 14.8, 14.9, and 14.4 seconds. This was the first time an African runner won the 110-meter gold medal, and the last time a non-American won the event until 1976. Whiteman Smith finished the race in fifth place with a time of 15.0 seconds, and the last place went to Fred Gabby Gaby of Great Britain with a time of 15.2 seconds. So the spread of like, first to last place was 0.4 seconds. The 400-meter hurdle race was another American-dominated event. Only Americans had won the gold medal in the event before 1928, and Frank Kuhl and Morgan Taylor were favored to repeat this yet again. Taylor was the returning Olympic champion, and Kuhl had already won the 220-meter race at the NCAA championships that year. Nobody was seriously considering David Cecil, 6th Marquess of Exeter, going by David Burgley, or Lord Burgley, as a serious prospect. How dare you doubt the Marquis? <laughs> Marquess. Really? Marquess, yes. That S is not silent. No, it, not in this particular rank in British. It's a Marquess. He's a Marquess. <laughs> Infuriating. <laughs> it's spelled differently. It's M-A-R-Q... I don't know how to read. M-A-R-Q-U-E-S-S. Ah. <laughs> anyway... Um, he had competed in 1924, but only in the 110-meter event and been eliminated in the first round. He tried the 110-meter again in 1928, but was eliminated in the semifinal. 
He made it to the finals in the 400 meter, and part of his success he accredited to his innovation of putting matchbooks on the hurdles when he trained, so he could tell when he was getting too close to them. That's actually a pretty good idea. Yeah. Another method of training he would do was run the perimeter of the great court of Cambridge's Trinity College in the time it took the noon bells to ring. That's a, also a good idea, but much more like traditional, I feel like. Running a, running a length of some place in a time is not as clever as, as putting Matt's books no. on, the, on the hurdles. But uh, doing it at Cambridge's Trinity College while the noon bells ring is kind of posh. His idiosyncrat as idiosyncratic as these methods were, they proved effective. His form was impeccable. As his competitor struggled, he beat Cool by 0.2 seconds and set a new Olympic record. You know where that could backfire, though? If they have hurdles that are a different height by the width of one Matt's book, you are in trouble. Yeah, you're going to be breaking all your shins. <laughs> Later... In we'll talk about him now because we're going to be focusing on different things when we talk about 1968. But he was part of the officials presenting the medals for the 200 meter race where the famous Black Panther protest occurred. Lord Burghley did not understand what was happening and reportedly stated that at the time, I thought they had hurt their hands when he saw the gloves. <laughs> it was like a sports wrap on their hands. The 300-meter steeplechase belonged to the Finns in 1928. This was both Pavo Nermi and Villarotola's final Olympic race. Nermi almost didn't make it to the finals. In the second heat, he had a spectacular fall in the first water jump. French runner Lucien Duquesne, who had competed in 1920, 24, and 28, but never won an Olympic medal, stopped to fish Nermi out of the water. Nermi repaid his kindness by pacing Duquesne, ensuring he would make it to the finals. In the finals, Rotola didn't finish the race. He dropped out with 600 meters to go, and I don't know why. Though by this point, he had accrued a few injuries, and the 5,000-meter final had taken place the day before. I have to assume he fell into a giant pothole and was just <laughs> never found. <laughs> it was, the pothole turned into a sinkhole yeah. and he disappeared into the sea that had, like, seeped up yeah. from the bottom. Nermi finished the race in second place behind fellow Finn Toivo Locula in... Lucola's Olympic debut. Lucola hadn't qualified in 1924 because he had been diagnosed with tuberculosis in 1923. He took up running to improve his health and it worked. It worked apparently quite well. Okay, I I think autocorrect screwed me on this one because it says one Anderson of Finland won bronze, unless his name is like Alni or something. And Duquesne finished sixth overall. Women get their own section this time because it was the first time women were allowed to compete in track and field events at the Olympics, and there weren't that many events. In fact, there were five, like I said before. 100-meter sprint, 800-meter race, 4 by 100 meter relay, high jump, and discus. Starting with a discus, because that's the event that I have the least information about, and almost all the information I do have is about Halina Konopaka. Konopaka was a Polish athlete who had taken up discus in 1926 and casually set the world record a few weeks after she started. Making a bold entrance to the sport. Yes. Uh, Konopaka was an excellent athlete who served as a member of the Polish Olympic Committee during the 30s, spoke three languages, wrote feminist poetry, and was an all-around aspirational figure. We'll put links to the feminist poetry in the meeting, or I, not meeting notes. Uh, I doubt any of Show it. notes. Yeah, if you Meeting can read... notes. Jeez. Meeting notes. You can read Polish poetry. I'm gonna curl but look. Up a good ball and die. 
Konopaka won the gold medal and set the world record at the 1928 Games, making her the first Polish gold medal Olympian and the first female discus Olympic champion. Later, during World War II, Konopaka was instrumental in moving the gold reserves out of Poland to keep it away from the occupying Nazi forces. Her husband had been the minister of the treasury and got it to the leaders of the Polish resistance in exile. For this, she was posthumously awarded the Silver Cross of Merit by the Polish government. Other things Konopaka did included founding a skiing school in New York, designing clothing and selling it out of her own boutique, graduating from college in 1960, and becoming a painter under the alias of Helen George. I mean, those are all quite impressive. I think none of them are as good as over the Nazis out of gold. (laughs) I'll fix that in post. Ah, sorry. (laughs) I thought we were allowed to swear when it came to Nazis. Yeah, yeah, I... I'm still trying to keep away from that E rating. Okay, understood. <laughs> the lone jumping event was the high jump. Ethel Catherwood was part of Canada's Matchless Six, six female track and field athletes who competed in the 1928 Games. Born in North Dakota, her family moved not long after that to Saskatoon. North Dakota, the worst part of Canada. <laughs> well, she, the, she moved to Saskatoon when she was young. And by the time she got to Amsterdam, she had earned the nickname Saskatoon Lily due to her striking beauty. She looked like a 1920s matinee star. Catherwood competed in a number of track and field athletes, but high jump was the only one offered at the Olympics. She was never totally comfortable with the attention her good looks drew. During the competition, she stayed wrapped up in a big red blanket while on the sidelines and didn't take off her sweatsuit until the bar was over five feet. But it wasn't enough to distract her, and she won the gold while setting a new record. Upon her return, she was mobbed with the biggest celebration in Saskatoon since the 1918 armistice, and was given a $3,000 education trust so that she could continue her piano studies. There were rumors that she was Hollywood-bound to be a movie star, but in response she stated, I'd rather gulp poison than try my hand at the motion pictures. So I I can understand not wanting to be known for your looks and not your athleticism if you are competing as an athlete. I... I don't think that keeping yourself under a very conspicuous blanket until the end of the competition is doing exactly what you want. I think it may be building hype <laughs> Yeah. Uh, at that point, but you do you. Yeah, I mean, I think she I think she just wasn't comfortable with people looking at her. We'll have bad news. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she did move to California eventually, settling in San Francisco. She's still the only female Canadian athlete to win a gold medal in an individual track and field event at the Olympics. There were three races for women at the 1928 Olympics, the 100-meter, 800-meter, and the 4x100-meter relay. The 100-meter was first in the schedule and the first race for female athletes at the Olympics ever. It drew a lot of attention. Male journalists and the primarily male audience were disturbed by the fact that the women, especially Canadian teammates, hugged and kissed each other before the final race. (laughs) The pressure on these women cannot be overstated. Two of the finalists, both seasoned athletes, Myrtle Cook of Canada and Lenny Schmidt of Germany, were disqualified due to false starts. Cook again upset the men by crying on the side of the track for nearly half an hour. Betty Robinson of the U.S. arrived at the track wearing two left shoes. Luckily, she had time to find at least one right shoe before the race. Robinson had been discovered when her high school biology teacher, who happened to be the track coach, saw her running to catch a train. He convinced her to join the track team, which at that point was all boys. Her first match was on March 30th, 1928, and she won with a time that was second to the American record holder. She matched the record holder in her second race, 
though her time was not recognized. After that, she was sent to the Olympic trials. She placed second overall and was sent to Amsterdam that July. Robinson was, to put it lightly, a dark horse. The Olympics were the fourth meet she had ever competed in. And after all the false starts, she was one of four women who competed in the final. It was a photo finish. Despite Robinson's clear lead at 50 meters, Canada's Bobby Rosenfeld quickly caught up. All four finished the race with barely 0.2 seconds between them, and the judges opted for Robinson. This was controversial, as it was unclear whether Robinson's chest or arms had actually broken the tape. You had to, it has to break with your chest. Rosenfeld was given the silver, and her teammate Ethel Smith won bronze. So we've used the phrase photo finish a few times in these games, but they didn't have that available for this race? They did. It was a photo finish. And they, but I mean... The, Couldn't tell from the picture. Yeah, the, the resolution wasn't the best. Um, at least not enough to tell the difference between 0.2 seconds clearance among four people. Uh, Robinson would not compete in 1932, as in 1931 she was involved in a horrific plane crash. We'll get into more detail on this one later, though, because she overcame her injuries to return to competition in 1936. Nice. Give her. The Canadian women were ready for revenge when it was time for the relay. Myrtle Cook sought redemption for her false start disqualification. Bobby Rosenfeld wanted the gold she was denied by the American team. And they got it. The Canadian women won the gold medal with the relay, beating the Americans by 0.4 seconds and setting a new world record in the process. The 800-meter race was a controversial one. Get ready for some real good early 20th century paternalistic concern trolling. This is where the uteruses are going to fall out because yes, running is too fast? It's too hard. The 800-meter was the most strenuous event for female bottles. athletes in 1928. And some of the women who competed in it were not primarily distance runners. Kenue Hitomi of Japan, for example, held the world record of the 200 meter and javelin, but neither event was offered to women in 1928. So after she didn't make it to the finals in the 100 meter sprint, she made a last minute entry in the 800 meter race, which you could still do at the time. Three German women made it to the finals, and they had a strategy. Elfrida Weaver and Marie Dollinger would take turns setting a grueling pace while Lena Radke stayed back and waited to make her move at the end of the race. This strategy was so successful that Radke not only won gold, but set a, new, set a world record that would stand for the next 16 years. She also earned Germany's first gold medal in track and field. Hitomi won silver and Inga Gensel of Sweden won bronze. However... There were reports that after the race, the women were so exhausted that several fainted and required medical attention. For some reason, this was unacceptable for female athletes, and it is now believed these reports were considerably exaggerated. It didn't matter. There have been some who believe that women should be banned from competition and that allowing them to compete at all was a mistake, and these supposed paintings were enough to renew this. According to the Daily Telegraph, um, we have a quote... From strangest moments, Olympic strangest moments. Oh boy! So essentially, what I'm hearing is that the any kind of wind down meant that it was too hard. Yeah. How dare we do this? Yeah. Remember how the uh, the men in 1904 had to be taken to the hospital after the marathon? Okay. To be fair, they were drinking strychnine. Yeah, but I know, and that was fine. We still let men do the marathon. Anyway, here's a Daily Telegraph. The, uh, the final of the 100 meters one? No, the top one. 
Yeah, yeah, that one. I'm sorry. Yeah. The final of the 100 meters for women as a demonstration of what girls may do and suffer to win, renown to suffer to win renown as athletes made a deep impression on me. But it left me firmly convinced that it would have been better if it had not been done. If it served any purpose at all, it showed that the modern young woman is apt to attempt too much in the name of sport. To run roughly half a mile at breakneck speed is surely too much for any girl. <laughs> and there was one at the bottom. Oh, yeah. we Yeah. Okay. No. Okay. Wait. Uh, they also claim that women who competed in endurance sports like the 800 meter race would become old too soon. I think if you, um, I think if you're going faster, you age slower. Actually, we've proven that with yeah. science. Yeah. Maybe, maybe since these games, we might not have known that yet. No theory. Theory of relativity wasn't a thing yet. Yeah. Harold Abrahams, who had won the gold medal in the 100 meter race in 1924, one of the chariots of fire guys argued on the behalf of the women athletes. He pointed out that the real reason they made men uncomfortable was not their physical capabilities, but their displays of emotion. And he, that's the next quote down there. The uh, women, as Abrams truly notes, are apt to break down for reasons not instantly clear to masculine understanding. They will cry when they win, and they will cry when they are beaten. Well, condescending, at least they still get to compete under these arguments. So a compromise was struck. Women would still be allowed to compete, but not in any race that was too long. Women would, would be limited to a maximum of 200 meters until this regulation was finally lifted in 1960. <clears throat> demonstration sports. The demonstration sports of the 1928 games were Katzen, Korfball, and Lacrosse. Kotzen is an ancient form of handball native to the Netherlands. Korfball is something like a cross between netball and basketball that's played on a grass field. Like most of these events, it's I guess. It's the field hockey of basketball? <laughs> yes. And, uh... Field skidball? Teams are made up of four men and four women. And lacrosse is lacrosse. One of the innovations that started with these games and spread to a universal level came about due to the parking situation. A great many cars were expected to be driving in and out of the city during the games. But the entire city of Antwerp at the time had a total of 2,000 parking spaces. Cars had, to be fair, barely been invented at this point, right? We had them in 1904. Remember, that was part of the problem with the marathon. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. So, um, I mean, it still weren't super duper common, but enough that 2,000 parking spaces during the Olympics was, was not enough. Yeah, they were like, this is going to be a problem. To deal with the looming parking nightmare, the city built a number of lots and garages for people to park and identified them with a sign that was a white P on a blue background. I've seen that. This has this became the international sign for parking and is still used all over the world. It's like one of those things where like you have to come up with something that a lot of international people will understand really quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it proliferated back to every country from these Olympics. Like everyone just like went back. When I was at those games, we had this P on this blue. Let's, let's do it. Yeah, it's very clear. <laughs> Carla Marangoni, erroneously listed in the official statistics as Clara, was part of the silver medal winning Italian women's gymnastics team. She was one of the first Italian women to win an Olympic medal and was the last surviving athlete from the 1928 games and the oldest living Olympian 
when she died in 2018 at the age of 102. So we do know it for her at this point. Everybody we talked about has since passed. We just ah, <laughs> but uh, that but was yeah. the holdout. That we was, could have recorded this in 2019. Yeah, it would have been closer. Um, the socialist and communist a- athletic competitions that started in opposition to the bourgeoisie Olympics grew in popularity, particularly in Russia. Uh, we've gone past uh, Lenin's. We don't work out. That's not part of our deal. <laughs> That's not part of his There day. are other communists. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just re- I just remember him being like very poo-poo about the whole thing. Of course we're not going to do Olympics. We don't work out. We're not into sports. Uh, meaning I'm not into sports. Not into sports. <laughs> In 1928, the first Moscow Spartakiad was held and the Workers' Winter Olympics. The Workers' Winter Olympics was split between Moscow and Oslo and featured hockey, ski jumping, skating, and cross-country skiing races with separate events for postal workers, border guards, and people who lived in rural areas. I don't know why those were the divisions. I, it's just assumed that postal workers are getting better at biathlon or whatever, and yeah, the yes. rural folk are better at, let's say, dressage. I don't know. <laughs> ski jumping? Uh, border guards are the ski jumping guys. They jump across. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, Keeping in the same tradition as the Olympics themselves, the Spartakiad, held in the summer, was a much bigger deal. Over 6,000 athletes participated, 600 from a dozen other countries, though I don't know which ones. The program was much bigger than the Amsterdam Games, opened with a water festival on the Moscow River, and a mass stroll of 30,000 people through the Lenin Hills. There were also motorcycle and automobile rallies, folk music performances, and poetry readings, and a mock battle between the workers of the world and the international bourgeoisie. Please tell me it was in the form of tug of war. We do have a quote. uh, 14. Marked there on the side. Uh, Page 136 to 137. We take the word Spartacade from Spartacus, the hero of the ancient world and leader of the insurgent slaves. Both the Comintern Congress and the Spartacade unite working people fighting for socialism and communism. They are inseparable in their common struggle for revolution, classical physical culture, and the revolutionary militant culture of Marxist-Leninism. Things started to get more dicey for... Quite the 180 from the earlier Lenin. Yes. Things started to get more dicey for socialists and communists in Western Europe after that. Those more familiar with European history will know why, but just as an extremely abridged version for those confused by this stuff, the Nazis really hated communists and blamed them for Germany and the Axis powers losing World War I. The USSR still held Spartakiads after 1928, but no international athletes traveled to compete in them. The last time there was any international event for workers' sport was the 1931 Workers' Olympiad in Vienna. Austrian socialism was a well-organized movement that was increasingly under siege from the rising tide of fascism, both in Austria and abroad. The 1931 games were held as a demonstration of international political support. And that's uh, page uh, 15 on page 137 from the games. Uh, the uh, All social democrats are delighted the next Olympics are to take place in Austria, where our comrades are valiantly fighting fascist reaction. They need the solidarity of the international proletariat. I'm not going to argue with that quote. (laughs) 
Over 200,000 spectators watched 77,000 athletes from a total of 27 nations compete in the movement's very own newly built stadium. Most of the athletes were housed with local working class families. The final of the soccer tournament drew a crowd of 65,000. 12,000 crammed into the velodrome to watch bicycle races. 10,000 comrades put on a spectacular performance staging a tableau where the great tower capital was pulled down and destroyed by the coordinated muscular energies of the international proletariat. So they also invented Burning Man? Yes. But the spectacle was just that. The fascists gaining power were not dissuaded by the performance or any other measure the socialists undertook in this time. Within four years, a right-wing authoritarian government took over in Austria and the workers' sports movement was dissolved, its leaders either dead or in exile. And there will be more of that before it was done. And then, as the devout detractors had predicted, Amsterdam succumbed to moral inequity and... No, that didn't happen. At least not now, because of the Olympics. Wait, the Calvinists were wrong? Yes. No, that can't be right. Uh, or at least not because of the Olympics. According to one editorial, and that's the last quote, uh, 16, from the games. The Amsterdam has been spared, quote? Yes. Amsterdam has been spared a moral catastrophe. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah did not need to be repeated. Pardon while I roll my eyes back into my head and then read the text again. Close up, the devil, depicted so blackly, is not as bad as anticipated. So, so there was not a... Oops, our bad guys. It turns out that sports aren't as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> the games would next be going to Los Angeles and then Berlin. Both places where no puritanical opposition could be found. But maybe there should have been. So, <laughs> like you said, uh, L.A. and Berlin. I'm like, there's some Sodom Gomorrah jokes in there somewhere, but I don't <laughs> exactly know what they are. Anyway, that's it for 1928. And next time, stuff starts to get more real. Uh, remember to like, rate, subscribe, review wherever you're listening to this. The apps change names. I don't know what they are. Um, find us on Twitter at Olympic Size Cast or email at us at Olympic Size Podcast at gmail.com mm. if you have any feedback. Or give us some advice on how to judge a boxing match. <laughs> we don't need that advice. That advice was needed like 70 years ago. Yeah, that's true. I do. Um, I want to stop no, real quick. No, like 100 years well, ago. I don't know math. Um, <laughs> I want to... You're, you're a programmer. Do you have any idea how little math we use in computer science? <laughs> it's all ones and zeros. There's no other numbers. Anyway, um, uh, I do want to pause and just point out as we are going through the Olympics um, what are we accruing that's like a historic first right and this time I think the big one jumping out is like the women's events in track and field like mm -hmm. it's great to finally get those like a foothold so to speak even if some controversy yeah um, so I look forward to those existing without the newspaper editorials about how dare you cry or like drink some water at the end because you're tired or whatever the complaint was <laughs> It ages them too fast. Once we prove that that's not the case, once we have the math that actually shows the opposite, I think this will all blow over. And yeah, um, an Asian individual athlete winning a medal, which... Yeah, also great. Yeah, definitely a first. At least in track and field. Now I'm like, I'm tired. It's late. So my mind is getting jumbled with numbers and records and firsts and whatnot. But yeah, um, the games are starting to spread. I mean, South America is showing up in soccer pretty big. And um, 
still not much of a presence from Africa other than Algeria, which was part of France, so all their medals went to France, and uh, South Africa, which was an apartheid state at the time, so... But, you know, that'll change. We'll get some better firsts for them uh, later. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Once the the colonies leave. Anyway, we're getting off topic. Thanks for listening. Um, And we'll be back, hopefully, sooner than 18 months from now. (laughs) Good night. Goodbye.